Okay, Jacob's life, so like so many of our lives, was a real contradiction at many different times in his life. His heart was set, for the most part, on spiritual concerns, although we find, and we will find as we go through his life, that he frequently battled with his own mindset. Almost to the end, his life was a picture of the spiritual man struggling with his own carnal nature, with his own flesh. The aspect of the flesh against which Jacob mostly struggled was not what we would call worldliness. It was not, you know, his love for the world. That was Lot's problem, but it wasn't really Jacob's problem. Rather, Jacob's primary struggle with the flesh had to do with his own self-sufficiency, which really boils down to a pride issue. Time and time again, Jacob took matters into his own hands, trying to accomplish things, even good things, without God's help. And this is a problem that I think a lot of us have. He would run ahead of God, and he he would not wait on God to fulfill his own word. You know, he wouldn't wait on God's timing and God's way of doing things. And whenever he ran ahead of God and did that, the result was always negative for himself. We have seen this already in the fact that Jacob... After acting very self-sufficiently from God at the advice of his equally self-sufficient mother, had to flee his home for fear of his very life. Yet in spite of Jacob's problem with self-sufficiency, he nonetheless did believe God, and he did believe God's great promise concerning both the promised land that his descendants would inherit the promised land, and that he would be in the messianic line of the promised seed. In spite of his continual struggle with the flesh, he was a man of faith. More importantly, Jacob was God's choice. And God understood, even you know, from a child, learning from his mother, Jacob understood that he was God's choice. Although he might have thought that his trickery his manipulation, his deception in uh, gaining the patriarchal blessing had forfeited his special position as the next in the chosen line of the coming Messiah. The Lord in a dream, which we looked at last week, confirmed to Jacob that he was indeed still God's choice. So he did not forfeit being God's choice. God would use Jacob in spite of his problem with self-deceptive self-sufficiency. And that really is great news for all of us, because if if Jacob received God's grace and God's mer- mercy, which he, he did time and time again, then there is hope for all of us, which, of course, there is. There is hope for everyone in this room. As we study Jacob's life, we find that he really was not worthy before Almighty God. Jacob was not at all good enough even in his faith, much less in his actions, to merit the Lord's favor. He wasn't that great of a son. We've already seen that because he deceived his own father in his old age, his father's old age. He wasn't that great of a brother, would you say, because he was more of a stumbling block to Esau than he was a testimony to him. He wasn't even a very good husband, especially not to Leah, and not even as he should have been to the woman he loved, to Rachel. And he wasn't a good father at all. He did not raise his sons in in the kind of godly atmosphere which he should have, and he created some very serious problems by way of his parental favoritism of Rachel's sons, particularly Joseph. And, of course, uh, he also lacked in fatherly discipline, and this caused some tremendous problems that we'll be looking at later on in the, the year. Apart from the Lord, we could say then that Jacob would have been an utter failure. But, then you think about our own lives, apart from the Lord, every one of us would be an utter failure. What did Jesus say? Apart from me, he can do nothing. And this, then, is why a study, really, of Jacob's life, even though it's rather pathetic, his life is pretty pathetic, a study of him turns out to be rather encouraging to us. 
His life shows us that any person, regardless of how weak, can be used of God if they merely put even their mustard seed of faith in him, in God, and in his one way of salvation, which is through the Lord Jesus Christ. When we left Jacob in our previous lesson, he was still sleeping. There he is taking a nice snooze. So anyway, he was still sleeping. He'd gone to sleep a fearful, lonely, disgraced, destitute man. But the Lord God, again in his grace and in his mercy and in his sovereign plan, gave him great tidings of wonderful promises and assurances by way of what? A dream, a marvelous dream. In the dream, Jacob learned that the God of Abraham and Isaac was also the God of Jacob. He learned that God would give, would have given him the Abrahamic blessing in his own way and in his own time, which is actually what he did in that dream, and that Jacob had not needed to go, you know, to go to scheming to get it. If he had just waited on God, he would have received the Abrahamic blessing. And in the dream, he was told that God would be present with him even as he went outside of the land, outside of Canaan, the land of blessing. And he was told that he would also one day return to Canaan. God would return him. And in the meantime, as God also assured Jacob in the dream, he would not leave him. And we saw that in verse 15. The dream itself revealed the fact that the vast impassable gulf between earth and heaven, between sinful man and holy God, is accessible through a God-made ladder or God-made stairway. Of course, that ladder or stairway is none other than a person. It is the promised seed of the woman, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, when he did come down from heaven, made claim to being the fulfillment of that ladder, Jacob's ladder. Who did he claim, make that claim to? We studied that last week. Nathaniel. Remember, he, in John 1.51, he told Nathaniel that he was the fulfillment of Jacob's ladder. So we learned that Christ is the one way into God's presence for sinful man. Furthermore, Jacob learned that God's holy angels, I don't know if you can see them in that picture, but they, they were going, you know, ascending and descending upon that ladder or that stairway. He learned that the angels were actively looking after him. They were ready to protect him and, and to minister to him, to guide him. So the overall message of the dream was the sovereign control of God. He has supreme power over all affairs on earth and heaven and even in between earth and heaven. He is sovereign God. Well, in our current lesson, we are going to complete our look at Genesis chapter 28. We're going to look at verses 16 to 22. And we're going to discuss what occurred when Jacob woke up from his dream which was actually a twofold awakening. Now, the title for this study is Pillow to Pillar. We're going to look at only two main divisions. First of all, we're going to discuss in verses 16 to 19, Jacob's vision of God expanded. And under this uh, first section, we're going to look at a new awe, a new memorial, and a new name. And we'll begin with verses 16 and 17, looking at a new awe. So look with me as I read verses 16 and 17. This is right after God spoke to Jacob in the dream. It says in verse 16, And Jacob awaked out of his sleep, and he said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I knew it not. And he was afraid and said, How dreadful is this place! This is none other but the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. When the Lord finished speaking to Jacob within the confines of his incredible latter dream, we are told that, of course, Jacob woke up. That dream was so powerful, it woke him up. Even though it wasn't morning yet, it doesn't become morning until verse 18. It was still night, the stars were still hanging above him in the dark sky, as Jacob, filled with awe, from the contents of that dream, said to himself, what? Surely the Lord is in this place, and I knew it not. He realized, you see, that he had been visited 
by the Lord himself, by God himself, who met him right there in that stony, desolate place in his distress. He had, therefore, new insight regarding God's presence with him, even, you know, there in that place. Now, as mentioned in last week's lesson, the Canaanite peoples and other heathen peoples of that time believed that their gods were limited in their power to certain areas, to certain locations. And we find this even evidenced in the scripture, if, if you want to look later on at First Kings chapter 20, uh, where the Syrians, they were pagan people, during the time of Elisha, they thought that the God of Israel was limited in his power to merely the hills. In other words, the God of Israel was only powerful when, for example, they were fighting in the hills. However, their gods, the gods of the Syrians, were more powerful in the valleys. And that's why they wanted to bring the battle into the valley, so their gods would prevail over the God of Israel. And apparently, this type of thinking had even somewhat permeated into the mindset of Jacob. According to his own, and remember now, he didn't have an, he didn't have a one page of the Bible, so you, you can understand. Try to empathize with him. According to his own words, he admitted that he had not known that God was in that place in Bethel. Now, of course, we know that Jacob would have understood that God had called his grandfather Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees, and he would have known that his mother had known God, even though she had been born and raised in northern Mesopotamia. So his statement, even though there's some confusion there, I'm sure, it, he, he, it might have had more to do with um, a new realization that God was there with him in Bethel in sort of a special way. I mean, God had actually met with him there in Bethel in the dream. He had seen God, and he had heard God speak to him for the very first time. So the Lord was with him there in Bethel, and he didn't know that. So also his uh, statement might have had something to do with his exile. He might have felt that the Lord had abandoned him. You know, before he had the dream, he might have been thinking, well, the Lord has abandoned me because of my wrongdoing. So upon his arrival at Bethel, he had, uh, we saw this, he had been full of fear fear over his circumstances. He feared what his brother might do to him. He feared what might lie before him in the unknown. And so um, we find now that before he went to bed, he was fearful. But when he woke up from his dream, he was full of a another kind of fear, but it was a much healthier fear. He was now full of a fear of God. We are told in verse 17 that he was afraid and he said, how dreadful is this place? And that sounds pretty bad, doesn't it? It sounds like in the English, oh, this is a terrible place. I can't wait to get out of here. But actually, the, the word for um, afraid, where it says in verse 16, 17, that he was afraid, that comes from the very same Hebrew word as does dreadful. So really what he is saying there is how fearful is this place. It's possible that Jacob did know that the Lord had also appeared to Abraham in that very same vicinity somewhere. And now after his own experience with meeting the Lord, he was absolutely filled with an awe for that place. Jacob also said, and this is again to himself, he said, this is none other but the house of God and this is the gate of heaven. At the latter part of verse 17. You think about this, although Jacob had to leave his own father's house, right? Yet he discovered that God, in his infinite grace, reminded him that he always had a place in his house, in God's house. So he had left his father's house, but God now says, Well, you'll always have a place in my house. Furthermore, God had shown him that he provides the way to that heavenly house, that heavenly home, which is, of course, through Jesus Christ. And he even sends heavenly escorts to that house. And uh, they, they were the angels. Now, of course, Jacob's statement 
about the place of his his uh, dream being the house of God that anticipates the name that he's going to give to that place. If you look ahead at verse 19, he's going to name the place Bethel, which means what? House of God. Then we have the term the gate of heaven. He said this is not only the house of God, but this is the gate of heaven. And this is the only time that this phrase appears in the Old Testament. It's found no other in no other place. And it was obviously used by Jacob because it was there in that place that the Lord of the ladder spoke to him in his distress and comforted him. So Jacob saw the place that uh, he would soon name Bethel, not only as God's house, a place where he could meet God in worship, but he saw it as a gateway to heaven, a place where he could, you know, even see God in his his Shekinah glory and petition God and have God answer him before falling back to sleep. Now, remember, this is the middle of the night, okay? So he wakes up right after he has the dream, and this is what he says. He says, uh, you know, the Lord was in this place, and I didn't know it, and he's afraid. And then he says, how dreadful is this place? This is none other but the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. Well, apparently he, he might have fallen back to sleep. We're not real sure. Maybe he didn't. If I had had a dream like that, I probably couldn't fall back to sleep after that. But at any rate, he didn't get up yet. It's still the middle of the night. And maybe as he was lying there, after that dream thinking, he decided that this very special place where God had spoken to him should be set apart with some kind of a marker, some kind of a memorial, which would, you know, mark that spot not only for himself if he should return there one day, which he was hoping to do, but also that it would serve a as a marker or a memorial for future generations to know that this was where God had met with man. So we're going to look now at what he does in the morning as he establishes a new memorial. Let's look at verse 18. It says, And Jacob rose up early in the morning and took the stone that he had put for his pillows and set it up for a pillar and poured oil upon the top of it. So whether Jacob slept very much after his dream, I I really don't know. I don't imagine he did sleep too much. But he woke up early in the morning and he got busy right away erecting a new memorial to that very special place where he had had his very first personal encounter with the Lord God of heaven. He took the stone which had served him as a pillow. And what did he do with it? He set it up. For a pillar, it says. So that's why I called the lesson, you know, pillow to pillar. Rather than taking the time to um, build a complete altar and find himself an animal to sacrifice, Jacob simply took his stone pillow and he set it on end. You know, he might have stocked some other stones around it, but he set it up on end and uh, he apparently hoped, as I said, that he would return there someday and perhaps then he would build a complete altar. But for now, a single stone pillar, let me have a, I have a picture of what that might have looked like. A single stone pillar was to serve as a visible reminder of his dream. Now think of this, the vertical pillar, as you see in this picture here, was a representation of the ladder or the stairway. The pillar was set where? Just like the ladder on the earth. But where did it point to? Up to heaven. The top of the pillar was signified, it was set apart as being special because he anointed the top of the pillar with oil. So that was like, you know, setting it apart is different, just as the top of the ladder was also in in the scripture, signified as being very special because it reached into heaven itself. And who was at the top of it, standing at the top of it? The Lord. So this was a miniature picture of the dream itself. Well, after establishing his pillar which was a kind of a temporary altar. Jacob, as I said, then took some oil, and uh, and he had obviously been carrying with him. I forgot that in our uh, question, you know, when we asked what he might have had with him. He also obviously had a little 
crews of oil there, probably for medicinal purposes. But anyway, he took some of that oil and he anointed the top of the stone pillar. This was his way of dedicating or consecrating the memorial pillar to the Lord who had appeared at the top of the ladder. So the oil symbolically set apart the pillar as a witness for the Lord. Oil is a biblical symbol of who knows what. The Holy Spirit, the spirit of truth who empowers the believer to serve Jesus Christ. So, you know, I thought about another comparison. As the angels come down from heaven to minister to the believers, to the saints, so also does the Holy Spirit come down from heaven, symbolized by the oil running down from the top of the pillar to eventually come down to the earth, you know, and soak into the earth. The Holy Spirit comes down from heaven to empower believers. It's interesting to notice that the very first mention of the house of God in the Bible, which is what we have here in our passage, the very first time that little phrase is used, the house of God, that it involves persons and things or symbols which are also vital aspects of the church. And the church is the house of God, right? For example, what have we got in this scene? Well, we find we have Jacob, of course. Who was Jacob? He became the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. What do we get from Israel? Well, we not only got the written word of God, the Bible, but we also got the living word of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, without which there would be no church. You know, the church is built on Jesus Christ and the word of God, the Bible. Then what else did we have in the scene? Well, we had ministering spirits, angels, who minister, of course, to the church saints. We also find um, mention of a stone pillar and a mention of anointing oil. In 1 Timothy 3.15, the Apostle Paul stated that, and this is a quote, that the house of God is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of truth. So the stone, or the stones, plural, of Jacob's pillar, which marked the place that he called the house of God, not only represents the ladder, you know, in his dream, but it also represents Jesus Christ, the chief cornerstone of the church, and the pillar and ground or foundation of truth upon which the church is established. As Jacob anointed the top of the pillar with oil, we have a picture of Christ as the head of the church, you know, the head of the stone, the head of the church, because the church, um, also in Christ's absence, is now, since he's in heaven, the church is the durable rock pillar of truth to the world. And again, as we said, anointing oil in the scripture represents the Holy Spirit. And apart from the empowering of the Spirit, the church would not be set apart as that pillar was set apart. The church wouldn't be set apart from the world around her. She would, she would not be a place of worship or a witness for the Lord. So I know that's kind of complicated, but it's just to say that there's a lot of imagery in this pillar that he set up. It's not only a picture of his dream and the latter, and a picture of, of Christ himself, but it's also a picture of the church. And I wanted to just throw this in. This is another footnote, but the Old Testament altar, he didn't build a complete altar here. He just, like, started one, made a promise that he'd come back and finish it if the Lord would carry through with his promises. But the Old Testament altar was actually another picture of Jacob's ladder because the altar represented the means by which man could approach God. Because Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, was willing to put himself on the altar, you know, the altar of the cross, he made it possible for men to no longer need altars with uh, sacrificed bloody animals put on them. 
We're told in Hebrews that he died once for all on the, on the cross, the altar of the cross. And therefore he put an end to the whole sacrificial system of worship. There was no need for that sacrificial system anymore. There was no need for the altar. He made it possible for man to have direct access to him, uh, to God by him. So really, in a, in a sense, the altar is a picture of Jacob's ladder, but the, but the ladder replaced the altar. Because now instead of having a substitute on the altar, we can climb the ladder and go directly into God's presence. This is some heavy stuff, and if, if you don't get it, uh, get the tape. <laughs> or study it on your own, that would be good. Anyway, there's a picture of the church. I should have had that up there. Let's look now at verse 19, a new name. We've looked at a new awe that he had, then a new memorial which he made, now a new name that he gave for that place. Verse 19, it says, And he called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of of that city was called Luz at the first. Well, what we have here is Jacob giving a new name, Now, we've been calling it Bethel, right? Because Moses knew that that's what the name was. But here's where it originally got its name, is here in verse 19, after Jacob woke up from his dream. He gives a name to the place where he had experienced this marvelous dream and where he had commemorated his uh, first direct encounter with the Lord with that stone memorial. And the name was Bethel, which which, which means... uh, house of God. Now, apparently, there was a nearby city named Luz, uh, which was distinguished from the desolate, desolate place where Jacob had spent the night and had his dream. He had probably avoided going into that city. Why do you think he wouldn't have gone into the city and spent the night instead of spending the night out in the open, you know, in the, in the mountains there? where he did put a pillow, a stone pillow down to sleep on. Probably he didn't go into the city because of fear that Esau might come behind him and then ask the people living there if they had seen him, you know. He would describe him and say, have you seen this guy? So instead, Jacob, who was a fugitive, chose to avoid uh, encounters with people and cities as he was making his escape from Esau. So he decided not to go into that nearby city. So uh, he didn't sleep in Luz. Eventually, what happened, what we have here, is that as Bethel grew and became, I mean, right now it's just a desolate place with a stone pillar set up, but it, it actually later on became a known, well-known center for worship originally worship of God, and then, unfortunately, under King Jeroboam, it became a place of worship of idols, and it was um, denounced by the prophets and eventually destroyed. That's the history of Bethel. It's a sad end. But as it became better known as a center for worship, the name Bethel apparently even overshadowed the name of that neighboring little town, Luz. And so the entire area eventually just became known as Bethel. For example, I'm from a suburb of Chicago, but I don't tell people the name of that suburb. I just say I'm from Chicago because that's sort of, you know, the name there everybody is familiar with. So Bethel sort of overshadowed the the little town named Luz. Anyway, what's interesting is that the, the name Luz... I looked this up, and it it has something in Hebrew. It has something to do with both an almond tree and the word separation. Now, if it does indeed mean almond tree, uh, I will leave that up to you to figure out the significance of the Holy Spirit mentioning it. Um, I'm sure there must be some significance, but I couldn't come up with it. However, if we go with the other translation and say that it means separation or sanctuary, then it could be meaningful. You see, when the Lord calls us to separate Luz from the world, at the same time, he invites us to enter into Bethel, the house of God. The church of Jesus Christ consists of all those who have been called out. 
which is actually the, the, the meaning of the Greek word for church. Ekklesia means called out once. So uh, those who belong to the church have been called out of the world. They, are, they have been the ones who have separated or sanctified themselves from you know, all that the world stands for. The lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. So if it means separation, there is some significance there. And we know that the Holy Spirit doesn't waste words, and I'm sure that he put the name of that little nearby town in there for some reason. So then we find that Jacob's initial response to that glorious stream of the ladder and to the Lord of the ladder and to the words of the Lord of the ladder, his initial response was a good one. He felt a definite reverential fear before the Lord. He erected a memorial stone pillar to commemorate the dream and to anticipate a future altar. And he consecrated the pillar to the Lord by anointing it with oil. And what else did he do? He named the place Bethel, house of God, to also commemorate the event which occurred there. Now, the next thing that Jacob did, we're going to spend the rest of the lesson looking at. The next thing he did was he made a vow to the Lord. And uh, that's what takes up the last three verses of this chapter. And I had no idea when I got into it that I would be spending so much time on it. But let's look at verses 20 to 22, second part of our outline. Jacob's vow to God expressed. Starting with verse 20, it says, And Jacob vowed a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and raiment to put on so that I come again to my father's house in peace, Then shall the Lord be my God. And this stone, which I have set for a pillar, shall be God's house. And of all that thou shalt give me, I will surely give the tenth unto thee. Well now, in our consideration of these last three verses, which contain, if you want to make a note of this, the very first vow recorded in the Bible... We not only need to discuss the vow itself, but we need to look at some different views of this vow. A vow, or I guess you could call it an oath, is a very serious promise to either do something in a specific way or to behave some certain way or to make some certain gift. You know, you promise that I'll do this, or, or, or um, I'll say this, or I'll give this, or I'll, I'll behave in some particular way. That's what a vow is, very serious business. Now, the Old Testament contains the accounts of both godly and ungodly vows. An example of a godly vow is uh, when Hannah vowed in 1 Samuel 1.11, she promised... The Lord that if she had been barren, she promised the Lord that if he would give her a child, if he would give her a son, she would what? Right, give him back to the Lord. She would dedicate him to the Lord's service and he would serve the Lord all the days of his life. That is an example of a godly vow. Now there are examples of ungodly or what we could call foolish or not so good vows. An example of one of those is the the promise that Jephthah made to the Lord. He promised the Lord that if the Lord would give him the victory over the Ammonites, he would sacrifice to the Lord the very first thing that came out his front door when he came home after the victory. Now that was a, I would call it a stupid vow. Because who was the first person to come out of his house when he came home? His own daughter. And so he kept his vow. That was even more foolish that he kept that foolish vow. And his daughter had to be put away for all the rest of the years of her life. That is in Judges 11.31. So after setting up the pillar memorial... We are told that Jacob vowed a vow. Now, what do you think the question we need to ask is? Was it a good vow or was it a not-so-good vow? 
And I have to tell you up front that there are Bible scholars who go either way on this. Some say, yes, it was a good vow. Some say, no, it was not so good of a vow. And I have about that many books, if you stack them up, on Genesis. And I even found some extra ones this week trying to study all this. And I can tell you that they're almost evenly divided between a good vow and a not-so-good vow. So what we're going to do... Of course, I'm the teacher, so I get a, I, I probably will be a little prejudiced, and you'll probably pick up on that. But we're going to try to examine both of these views, and then your very last homework question is you tell me what you think. Is it a good vow or not so good vow? Okay? Um, the good vow view comes first. Now, not, it's not always the case Yet many of those I found that take the good vow view, which now this is merely my name for it. (laughs) These are my names, good vow view and not so good vow view. I I made those up. I don't know what you want to call them. But many who take the good vow view are the same people who see Bethel as the place of Jacob's salvation experience. Now, that's not always true, but a majority of them say this is where he got saved and this is a good vow. They see him as acknowledging the Lord as his God for the first time in this vow at the end of verse 21, where it says, then shall the Lord be my God. They say that that is his salvation expression. Okay. To do this, however, they find that it is necessary to change the word if... You see the word if in verse 20? Everybody look at the word if. If God will be with me. The people who hold to the good vow view have to change the word if to the word since. All right? So that it reads, since God will be with me, da 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 da, then shall the Lord be my God. And it is possible for them to do this because the Hebrew word can also means since. At any rate, the good vow view interpreters read his vow as saying, in effect, this. This is a paraphrase, okay? Since God will be with me, then he shall be my God, and this stone pillar will be God's house, a place of remembrance where God will be worshipped, you know, when God keeps his word and returns me there. Furthermore... I will pledge one-tenth of all that God will give me. So Jacob's vow is viewed then as a great statement of faith in that he believed God would surely accomplish all that he had promised regarding caring for him and being with him and bringing him back again into the land of Canaan. His vow, you see, was given in appreciation of the dream and in appreciation of God's promises to him. Now, some who hold to this view see Jacob, for once, finally, as a new man. In that, you see, instead of always manipulating and taking, he is now pledging to give. He was pledging to give a future altar right there at Bethel. And he was pledging to give a tithe of all that God would grant to him while he was gone from his father's house. Others who hold to this good vow view see Jacob as expressing a renewed commitment to God. In other words, there are some who say, well, he didn't get saved here. He was already saved. But here he is making a renewed commitment to God. You know, that out of a heart of love and appreciation, he was voluntarily vowing to follow God as never before. And I agree with that, definitely. I agree with that. He was making a form of a recommitment to God. All right, that's the good vow view. Now let's look at the not so good. I didn't want to call it a bad vow view because it's not really a bad, bad vow. Um, But let's call the second one not so good. Not so good vow view. Now, this view does not change the first word of Jacob's vow to mean since instead of if. Okay? So it remains consistent with the the decision of all the major English Bible translators. 
all of the, and I had my um, future son-in-law look this up. He's uh, almost about ready to get his Master's of Divinity degree, and he has unbelievable um, CD that can spit out everything at once. And so he looked this, and he's been taking Hebrew for years. He looked this up, and he told me that, indeed, this is true. All the major English Bible translations, including the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the original Hebrew, that all of those translators decided that the Hebrew word should be if. So the passage, the not-so-good vow viewers say, should be interpreted just as it is written, so that it says, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and raiment to put on so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then shall the Lord be my God and this stone which I have set for a pillar shall be God's house and of all that thou shalt give me, I will surely give the tenth unto thee. You see, when we read it the way that I guess probably every one of us have it in our English Bible translations. Um, when we read it this way, it's, def- it, it, it's definite for us to see that there are some weaknesses in this vow when it's read as it is stated. Because it certainly portrays Jacob's faith on a lower level. And it reveals more of his ongoing problem that we, you know, we've already seen he had, his ongoing problem of bartering or bargaining for that which he desires rather than simply putting his trust and faith in God to keep his word. Now, to get a better understanding of the not-so-good vow view, that's a mouthful, We really need to back up a little bit and review the situation from the time that Jacob woke up from his dream. To begin with, when we look more closely at Jacob's words and his actions, we find that he seemed to really put almost too much of an emphasis on the place. If you look through this, ever since he had the dream, if you'll circle all the times you see the word place, you'll see there's definitely an emphasis on the place. Awakening from his dream, his first reaction was to marvel that the Lord was in that place. That was in verse 16, and he had not known it. And he commented to himself about the, um, the fearfulness of what? Of that place, because it was the house of God and the gate of heaven. And when dawn came, when morning came, his first reaction was to mark the place with his stone pillow. And then he named the place. He almost seemed more in awe with the place than with God. He seemed intent on making it a holy place calling it the house of God and the gate of heaven and vowing that he would return there and establish a worship center, you know, with a real altar if God would fulfill all of his promises. And this is even more obvious if we do some comparison with something found over in chapter 35, verse 7. If you want to look ahead for a minute, 35, verse 7 chapter 35 verse 7 by the time of chapter 35 Jacob will have been through many additional years of lessons and he will have grown tremendously in his spiritual maturity by the time we will get to chapter 35 now that which is interesting to notice is that although he returns to the place His emphasis is no longer on the place. His emphasis is on the God of the place. Now, how do I know that? Because he built an altar there to God, not a monument to the place. He built an altar to God. And what did he name the place at that time? El Bethel. El Bethel, or El Bethel, means God of the house of God. So obviously then, now this is like 20, 30 years later, his emphasis 
with a lot of spiritual maturity, his emphasis has changed from the awesomeness of the place to the awesomeness of the God of the place. Okay, you can go back to chapter 28. Now, another issue to consider before we discuss the vow, I haven't gotten to the vow yet, I'm still discussing the preliminaries. Um, Another thing to consider has to do with something that Jacob did not emphasize. And that was his own personal sin. Jacob's sins of impersonating his own brother, Esau, of deceiving his father, and of even bringing God's name into his lies, which we saw in chapter 27, verse 20, They were the real cause of his exile, and they were the real cause of his distress, right? He had attempted to play God and take matters into his own hands. His sins had put him in the predicament that he was in. So although it was commendable that Jacob had this new sense of awe for God, and the place, and that it, it was commendable that he he built a pillar or set up a pillar to commemorate that place where God had met with him in his day of distress. Yet we find no mention of of his sin, of him mentioning his sin or confessing his sin. Now again. This is a situation which might not be so noticeable until we compare Jacob's response after his special revelation of God uh, here with his response years later, up the road again, okay? If you go to chapter 32 this time, verse 10, here is, now this is 20 years later. I think, I haven't gotten there yet, but I think the other response we looked at was 30 years up the road. Now this response is 20 years up the road. This is when he's returning to Canaan. Hasn't gone to Bethel yet, but he's returning back to the promised land. Notice here he does acknowledge himself as a sinner unworthy of God's great mercy. He said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, I am not worthy of the least of all the mercies, or thy mercies, and of all the truth which thou hast showed unto thy servant. Now do we read words like that? In Genesis chapter 28, we don't. See, he's just had a vision of God, God speaking to him. But we don't read words like this. Now, what about some responses of other men who had encountered God? What, what are their responses? Well, talking with the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ, Abraham, his, Jacob's grandfather, had confessed that he had no right whatsoever to even speak to the Lord. And he referred to himself as being but dust and ashes. That was in Genesis 18:27. Then Isaiah, when Isaiah received a vision of the Lord sitting high upon his heavenly throne, in Isaiah um, chapter 6, verse 5, what did he say? He said, woe unto me. You know, because I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips. What did David say when he went to talk to the Lord? He said, who am I, O Lord God? Um, When the pre-incarnate Christ appeared to the prophet Daniel, that's not Daniel, I didn't have a picture of this, but when he appeared to Daniel, it says that Daniel lost all the strength in his body and he passed out. He fainted. That's in Daniel 10, verses 8 and 9. When the Apostle Paul met the glorified, resurrected Lord Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus, all he could say is, what shall I do, Lord? And from that moment on, he saw himself as the chief of sinners. When Peter got a clear vision of who Christ really was, what did he do? He fell down before him and he cried out, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. When the Lord God spoke to Job, Job said, Behold, I am vile. When the Lord appeared to John on the Isle of Patmos, it says that John fell down at his feet as dead. So, Although Jacob 
Let's go back to Jacob. Although Jacob awoke with a new feeling of reverential fear and awe for the place, we don't really hear any confession such as we hear from these other men who had their encounters with the Lord, nor as we hear from him 20 years later when he finally, when he did admit that he was not worthy of God's mercies. Well, these, these, all these various points taken from Jacob's initial response to his encounter with the Lord are merely given to you in order to set the stage for those who hold the not-so-good vow view. Um, when, when they look at the vow itself in verses 20 to 22, they note some very definite weaknesses. For one, they suggest that the focus of Jacob's vow is on himself rather than on the Lord. And again, we better see this when we do some comparing. If we compare God's vow to Jacob, and that was in verses 13, 14, and 15, with Jacob's vow to the Lord, we see some definite differences. All right, what was God's vow to Jacob? In essence, it was, I will give you the land, I will give you innumerable descendants, I will be with you, I will bless all the families through you, I will keep you, I will bring you back to the land, and I will never leave you. Wonderful promises, wasn't it? Sevenfold Amazing promises of assurance and blessing. Now, what was Jacob's vow to God? All right. It was, um, according to the bad, not the bad vow, but the not so good vow viewers who say that it, the word should be if. All right. It was if God will be with me, if God will keep me in the way that I go, if God will give me bread to eat I should that says break it should say bread if God will give me bread to eat if God will give me raiment to put on if God will return me safely to my father's house then I will worship God then I will tithe if nothing else I think this contrast of the vows certainly shows us the difference between a, an unconditional promise and a conditional promise. God's promises to Jacob were promises that he would keep regardless of Jacob's actions or attitudes. Whereas Jacob's vow was conditional. It was conditional on God keeping his promises. And we even notice that Jacob threw in a few more conditions here. Anybody know what they are? Some things that God didn't say. <laughs> Uh, the bread and the, and the clothing. God, uh, Jacob threw that in about the food and the clothing. And that was not something that God had specifically mentioned. By the fact that uh, Jacob mentioned food and clothing, we become aware of his concern about these things. He wanted to make sure that God's keep on him, you know, when God said he would keep him. Jacob wanted to make sure that that meant that he would include, that God would include the, the basic necessities. Now, of course, those who hold to the good vow view, they say that Jacob was being very humble here by simply asking God for the bare necessities. You know, just all I need, Lord, is food and clothing. Those who hold to the not-so-good vow view say that his mere mention of these things demonstrates his lack of understanding that the God who rules the universe and who had just promised him to give him all the land of Canaan as well as innumerable descendants and to be with, present with him and to keep him and to bring him safely back into the land that surely that would also involve giving him his daily bread and keeping him clothed. Now, if we criticize Jacob for his lack of trust in God's word, we need to remember that we might have a beam in our own eyes in this regard. Because you think about the word of God, is it not full of all kinds of wonderful promises to you and me? 
to us, such as, but my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Um, there's this one here in Psalm 145, 15, thou givest them their food in due season. We have um, the Lord's words, therefore take no thought, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink? Wherewithal shall we be clothed? For your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of these things. And uh, we also have the Lord's promise on the way when he was ascending back into heaven, when he said, and lo, I am with you always, even into the, unto the end of the world. Those are just a few of many, many promises. Yet knowing these promises and knowing that God is the God of the universe and knowing that we can trust him with our eternal souls, do we still not fret over the little daily things? Do we still not wonder if God is really, really going to meet our needs? If he is really going to take care of us and be with us no matter what, do we not sometimes think that we have to help God out a little bit by wringing our hands and and worrying or by making some kind of a Jacob bargain, bartering with God? You know, for example, God, if you will just get me through this one, (laughs) I promise that I'll never miss a a Tuesday morning Bible study. I promise I'll serve you. Or, Lord, if you will answer this particular prayer, I I will be so much more faithful. You won't even know it's me. You, You just won't believe it. I will be so faithful. I'll even serve in the nursery at at Bible study. If you really, really come through for me on this one, I might even teach a Sunday school class. I might even join the choir or whatever. You know, I'll let you know, um, I'll let everyone know that you are my God. Kind of like what maybe Jacob was saying here. I'll really get out there and witness for you. Or Lord, if you will protect me and my family and our financial concerns, then I will actually get some of those little tithing envelopes and put some money in them. Or I will give you more. If you give me more, Lord, I will give you more. We, we see that kind of in verse 22 here. So this kind of negotiating with God goes on all the time with Christians, believers. So don't get the idea that, uh, you know, just because if the not-so-good vow viewers are correct... And if Jacob is bargaining here a little bit with God, don't get the idea that this has to mean that Jacob was not a saved man. (laughs) Because you and I do exactly the same thing all the time. Even subconsciously we do it. Now another problem with Jacob's vow, which is pointed out by the not-so-good vow viewers, has to do with the things that Jacob offered God. First of all, he promised to let the Lord be his God. He told God that... If he was present with him, and if he preserved him, and if he provided for him, and returned him to his father's house safely, he would then let it be known to all that God was Jacob's God. And he would finish his temporary stone pillar and make it into an altar for future worship of God. And he would give God one-tenth of all that God had given to him while he was away in exile. Now, the problem with these conditional promises is that they were conditional. When they really should have been in effect already. I'm running out of transparency, so you can just look at some of the ones we've already had. They should have already been in effect. God was already the God of Jacob, whether or not Jacob acknowledged it or whether Jacob witnessed to others about him or whether he worshipped him there at Bethel. God is the God of all men, whether they acknowledge him or not. And believe me, they will one day, won't they? Every, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess one day that he is God. Well, the, pro- the problem with God's conditional promise um, also to make the stone pillar into a place of worship, God's house, is that, again, the emphasis seemed to be on the place rather than on God. He should have... Yeah, Jacob's, I'm sorry. It should be Jacob's unconditional problem. Promise. Conditional promise, Jacob's conditional promise, the problem with it, thank you, was that he uh, should have taken the time right then and there, just as his grandfather Abraham had done, 
And he should have built the altar. Instead of a temporary stone pillar, why didn't he take the time? There were plenty of stones around. Why didn't he take the time to build a complete altar right then and there and um, go and find himself an animal and sacrifice it on that altar? Why didn't he? Why why do you think he didn't take the time and do that? I think it it was because he was still worried that Esau might be pursuing him and he needed to hurry on his way and not take the time to build an altar and find an appropriate animal sacrifice. If Jacob had truly trusted what God had just promised him, in that dream, then you see he really wouldn't have been worried about Esau at all, would he? Because God had promised that he was going to have many descendants, his descendants were going to inherit the land, that God was going to keep him, God was going to bring him back to his father's house. So he would know that Esau wasn't going to be successful in killing him. So um, why didn't he take the time as his grandfather Abraham had done? When God first met with Abraham in, at Bethel, the place of Bethel, Abraham had built an altar and he had sacrificed there to God. Now, in the fact that there is no mention of Jacob building an altar or praying, now listen to this one, no evidence, no mention of Jacob building an altar or praying or in any visible way Uh, at all of worshiping or calling upon God during all his years of exile in Haran. What did I just say? Not one evidence during the whole time, 20 years he's in Haran, not one mention of him building an altar, praying, or in any visible way calling upon God during all those 20 years it would appear that perhaps the not-so-good vow view is correct. Although Jacob believed in God uh, and believed, he didn't question God's promises concerning the coming seed of the woman. He didn't question any of the Abrahamic covenant promises. It appears, however, by his future lack of performance that he was going to wait to worship God and to give to God when and if God did return him safely back to his father's house. So the not-so-good vow interpreters would generally agree that Jacob was reverentially, it's a hard word to say, but that he was uh, impressed with all that had occurred at Bethel. And his perspective of God's omnipresence did indeed increase. Not, not to the full extent it should have been, but it did increase. Jacob did, seem to, did not seem to question God's words concerning the Abrahamic covenant. He very likely did believe that he was the chosen one to continue the line which would bring the Savior into the world. He probably did not doubt that one day his descendants would inherit the land that God had promised him. However, you think about Jacob and his position, because he had seen that neither his father nor his grandfather had ever personally possessed the land, he might have thought that although his future descendants would inherit the land, yet he himself might be permanently exiled. So you see, his big hang-up seemed to center on his concern that he personally returned to the land, to his father's house. So although he seemed to trust God and with the big things, he was not so sure about the lesser things, such as his safe return and his daily needs. So although he fully appreciated that the Lord was in Bethel, watching over him when he did not even know it, he was not so sure that the Lord would be able to keep his promise to watch over him when he left the land or that he would or could keep his promise to bring him back to the land and to his father's house safely. So his condition seemed to be that if the Lord could prove to him that he could and would do those things, 
Then um, Jacob would truly worship him, set up a worship center there, and he would tithe to him, to God, a tenth of all that God had given to him while he was in exile. So the not-so-good vow view would see that Jacob grew in his reverential fear of, of God at Bethel, and he did well in up placing a pillar stone memorial there and consecrating it to the Lord with oil, and that even his vow was a legitimate response in that he promised some good things, but that it was not so good in that his vow was so self-centered and that it was conditional upon God fulfilling his promises. So what this boils down to is that the not-so-good vow viewers really say that Jacob was up to his old tricks. And that here he was really trying to bargain with God. Arthur Pink wrote this of Jacob's conditional vow. He says, quote, how true to life this is. It was not only characteristic of Jacob personally, but typical of us representatively. Jacob failed to rise to the level of God's grace and was filled with fear instead of peace and expressed human legality by speaking of what he would do. Oh, how often we follow in his steps instead of resting in the goodness of God and appropriating his free grace. Like Jacob, we bargain and we enter into conditions and stipulations. End of quote. So those are the two main views concerning Jacob's vow of verses 20 to 22. And since we really cannot read between the lines, I mean, we've tried to do some of that, but we really can't see Jacob's heart. We really don't know for sure his heart in this matter. Then we really cannot be dogmatic about either one of these positions. However, after saying that, I also say, as you know, the teacher, that you probably noticed I was a little more leaning toward the not-so-good vow view. But what I want you to do is, you know, take this home, study it on your own, get your commentaries out, look up your Hebrew words, <laughs> do whatever, you know, you take. But try to determine what you think the best interpretation is and look at it in light of what we already know about Jacob and what we learn about him in the future. You know, if you want to go ahead and look at a few chapters in advance and see what you come up with. 